Welcome to Let's Talk Sales. This is the podcast for anyone interested in growing sales. Today's episode of Let's Talk Sales is brought to you by our ebook on how to network like a pro. In it, you'll discover how to prepare, what to say, and how to ask for business. Be sure to download a copy today. You can find it in the notes for today's show at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod 250. Quite a milestone episode. I'm so glad to have you with us on this journey. I'm glad to be here. All right. This is Elizabeth Frederick. And today I am speaking to the best-selling author of Croissants versus Bagels, Strategic, Effective, and Inclusive Networking. He is a networking and relationship-based business strategy expert. He's an event consultant and MC, and he now is specializing in virtual event consulting. He is the host of the On the Schmooze podcast, and he is our neighbor to the north based up in Boston. I'd like everybody to welcome to the show, Robbie Samuels. Hi, Robbie. Thank you so much. Hey, Elizabeth. I'm so glad that you could join us today. Obviously, this is kind of an evergreen topic, but it is especially relevant in this moment. Um, I just shared really the top level bullets in the resume, um, but I'd love it if you could introduce yourself to our listeners. Maybe talk a little bit about where you developed your passion for networking and some of the key stops on the journey to where you are today. I know big compound question, but take it wherever you want to go. (laughs) Well, I've been speaking on the topic of strategic and inclusive networking for over a decade. And it started actually because I was running a meetup group, meetup.com. I was running a meetup group that I'd founded uh, that brought together a sort of a diverse group of people mm-hmm. and we wanted people to stay you know, connected, feel like they were welcomed and engaged. And we know that people often get very clicky. So we brought the regulars after the first year together for a little conversation about that. And they were all about, you know, keeping the group welcoming. Mm-hmm. They said it had been very welcoming for them. But then when I started offered some ideas for how they might support that, you know, come a little early, no problem, help at the front door, no problem. And then, you know, mingle and schmooze. And they were like, what? No. And it turned out that most of them were pretty shy or, or introverted. And so the reason they felt welcomed was also the reason they didn't want to then do the, those things that would help other people feel welcomed. And so that's where the training began. And I had sort of this innate sense of how to do networking, but you learn a thing by teaching it. Mm-hmm. And so I got a lot better at networking as I taught it. And so that's that was back in 2007. So we're going back a ways. And that's when it all started. And it morphed into a program that I then led for all these years. And I was really had been working most recently with associations about how to create more engaging second year experiences. Everyone knows how hard it is for first timers, but I was thinking a lot about the year two experience and how do you help people feel really a part of the culture so they want to come back to year three and also bring people with them. Well, all those plans <laughs> kind of like put on hold in this <laughs> new world that we're living in, but content and connections are both a big reason for why people go to events. They don't just get on a plane to get great content because they can, as you are doing right now, anyone listening, get great content from the comfort of their home. And up until this moment in history, virtual events and podcasts and virtual summits, it was really just about content. It wasn't about anything else. Well, now it needs to be about content and connection. So that's the pivot that I've made since uh, March 2020. So now I'm a virtual event design consultant and MC, and I'm really helping content producers and event producers think about how to infuse a community connection into all of the content they're creating online. 
Definitely. That's that's such an incredibly important observation. Um, it's been funny to me because I literally talk to clients all the time who've done events um, and, and they're trying to take their in-person events and move them online. And what everybody is really focused on is how can I just take my content and present the same content online? And I'm like, well, that is the absolute easiest part. If you have a deck and you used to stand in front of a room and talk about it, now you have a deck and you're going to sit in front of a camera and talk about it. <laughs> That's the easy part. But what they're they're often not thinking about replicating is all of the networking that happened, all of the connection that happened, you know, the half hour before the event, the half hour after, you know, the presentation. Um, even sometimes I'm hearing from people that they're not even trying to include a Q&A. I'm like, well, that, that is the most basic and easiest way to have some level of interaction. So what are some best practices that you've identified for event coordinators who are moving events online so that they can master the content part, but really also drive that connection and engagement? Well, I, I have to underscore how crucial it is that we start to get this right mm -hmm. because you know, in the first few months of this pandemic, I think people are going to be just thrilled to have access to anything. Mm -hmm. But soon it's going to not, the ROI is going to be measured in, you know, was this worth my hour? Mm -hmm. And if it was just like content that would, you know, could be consumed on the replay, well then no. And then if, if people are put it on the replay list, they never get to it. I mean, we all have lists of things we want to watch <laughs> and listen to. We have books piled next to our bed. So unless you create a, a, a reason for things to be consumed in an urgency, in a now moment, in a, in a collective experience, then there's a good chance that all the hard work you put into, you know, curating and recording and editing and sharing that content, no one's actually going to consume it, which as a content producer, makes me very, very sad. So I think you have to take the stance that we're going to be innovative and think about the community experience. That um, has included a number of things over the last few weeks for me. I've helped with this uh, multi-day event that was supposed to be in person in Montreal, and it was hosted online. We ended up attracting twice as many people to it because of wow. that. Wow. And, um, and the goal was to sell into a high-end coaching program, and they met their sales goal. So, you know, awesome all around. I emcee the opening reception sort of kickoff. So when you go to a traditional conference, you would get there the night before, you would check in, and you would go to the reception. So we kind of recreated that experience. And I use, you know, high energy, I use music, I, you know, used a lot of good humor, and then breakout rooms, people can get to know each other. I taught them some cultural cues around updating their name to include their location. Um, because again, if it's an international or even regional event, people want to know where are you coming from? That's one of those questions. And really just like use all the facilitation skills that I've learned, because there's a difference between facilitating online and in person. And I've had the good fortune of getting to practice online facilitation for the last five years. Anyone who's had to practice running coaching programs or workshops in person is suddenly thrust into this new reality. And all the body language cues that you would use in person just don't work online. So some of why I think I've been effective is because I understand that and I can kind of roll with it and help people connect online. And, and there's also... Um, you can have a hallway Zoom room for the 30 minutes between sessions that mm. you leave open for anyone who wants to hang out. You could tell people to go to their breakout rooms like early, and that would be the, the break would be for their small group. We did a storytelling lunch where at the end of the plenary, everyone was given a story prompt and then sent to a breakout room 
and they had 10 minutes to get their lunch, come back, and then they had 40 minutes to eat lunch together in these groups of four to six and share a story on the prompt. So we did that three days in a row for this mastermind event that I had helped hold. Um, so very did very different things. One of the events I did had a meditation hour in the morning. Um, I mean, wow. if you were going to a conference, what are the experiences you would have? And then how do you recreate that? I also love using Slack alongside mm-hmm. of the Zoom sort of experience because um, it's a way to create community that's not just a distracting chat that goes by, but it's a way to sort of target the conversations. You can have channels by region, by industry, um, by you know experience in the room. So you can have you know channel for the what's happening on the main stage. You can have what Danny Innie uh, from Mirror calls pack your bag. So when you have that pack your bag moment, it's like, wow, I got what I needed. I, if I packed my bags right now, I'd be happy. So mm-hmm. get a channel for that for, you know, you know, when you have that aha moment. So there's just like really so many great virtual tools. And of course, you still have to have good moderation. So I have a friend who does amazing panel moderation and she has experience doing this online. And so, you know, looking for people who have that kind of skill, there's this guy that, that did amazing um the, the live streaming, like what he was able to do. So it wasn't just a, a Zoom room where we're all just staring at one person, but he integrated the audience in the bottom third and he had the you know PowerPoint and the speaker who was standing, not sitting. And it really, it elevated the whole thing. Yeah. And, and um, so working with him, I'm bringing that to other organizations. There are just so many sort of small factors and big factors. And a lot of these aren't costly. It's just you'd have a 30 minute break and not leave the zoom room open, like, or you could leave it open, <laughs> you know, yeah. like some of it costs more money. It's just about intentionality. Some of it requires facilitation, um, mailing things to people is the other cool thing to do. Mm. So, um, you know, so that throughout the, the, the event you have, pro- you know, surprises, like don't open until I say package number three and then, Hey, everyone get your package number three. We're going to open it together. And it's like, you know, whatever it is. So, the money that you would have spent for coffee could be $10,000 for a major event. Absolutely. Use that money to mail things to people. So they have this collective experience of being in the same room when they all open the, the book and they discover they got a book or they all open and discover they got a nice pen and pad, a paper. Um, whatever it is, that's what's memorable. Send people a door tag that says, <laughs> do not disturb, branded. You know, like I'm in a meeting, I'm learning, I'm growing, leaning into this crisis. Whatever you want to have it say, there there's so many fun ways to repurpose the money. And I think too many people I've talked to are thinking by moving online, they're going to save money. Mm-hmm. And while they will probably save some percentage, but they might save like 25%, but they're still going to spend 75% of their budget. If they're thoughtful about how they use that, I think it'll have a, an incredible impact both in the way people consume the content, talk to each other, engage, and it builds incredible loyalty ongoing. And by the way, this is true for even virtual summits, which are you know pre-recorded mm-hmm. pieces of content. I hosted a virtual happy hour for someone for their summit, and then I said, you know, how many people actually watched this these recordings this past week? And it was very few hands. <laughs> and I said, but if you knew coming into this call that we were going to do breakouts based on topics, and and you you know here are the five topics that we're going to do breakouts on, would you have watched a few of the show? They're like, yeah, I would have done that because then it would have been important to do it now because I would have been part of that conversation. So again, thoughtful ways to kind of infuse community connections. Absolutely. 
there was there was so much there and so valuable that I would say if you're an event organizer, literally pause, rewind, and re-listen. <laughs> but I want to I want to take a deep dive into some of the things that you mentioned. The first like big picture thing is um, just to be super intentional about it and to really think about it because I think a lot of people are just like. They're they're disappointed and frustrated because they can't have the event that they wanted. And they're just thinking, okay, how can I just flip this online, do the absolute basics, and that's all they're gonna do. And that's just so sad that you're you're missing out on such opportunity um if if you don't take that time. I would say it sounds like kind of the the next level of really basic improvement that you can do is to um, engage experts, engage professionals in the various functions. Like you said, you know, find an MC who, who knows this and is good at this. Find um, panelists who, who are comfortable with this and, and really lean on some expertise to help because it's not reasonable to expect that the person who would have usually organized and facilitated the event in person is necessarily going to have the skills to do it online. Am I correct in that kind of assessment? Yeah. Yeah. I, I would even go as far to say that when you're hosting an in-person event, you hire an AV team because you don't just put your phone on a tripod and hope for the best. Absolutely. This is kind of the same. You know, and and it's kind of the same. And you yeah. may spend the same amount or less, um, honestly, depending depending on this and really thinking about right. um and that's such a great perspective. Again, that I think a lot of people are thinking, you know, I had this budget for in-person events. I'm not gonna be spending that, but I also don't think I'm gonna get the value out of it, blah, blah, blah. You know, they they have these kind of negative thoughts. They're like, well, I'll save the money and I probably won't get more money. But if they could spend some of that money. Uh, I love what you said. You saw that event and it got twice as many people that attended. We are seeing the same thing where um, when we give talks, when we have events, there's no way we would get the audience numbers if we did those in person. Um, And we've even seen um, our our CEO, Charles Bernard, does a lot of speaking engagements to groups and their existing groups. And so they have a percentage attendance that is pretty typical when he does an in-person event. And with these online events, he's seeing typically double normal attendance. And so if event organizers just get their minds around the fact that this is an actual opportunity, this isn't like second best worse. This is actually equivalent to the opportunity before, and you could make it even better. Um, That's a mindset shift that I think is really important to have. Well, and I think that virtual events, high caliber virtual events are here to stay. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's going to be a while. Uh, till we have a lot of people willing all at once to get on a plane mm-hmm. and go to a destination event. I think we'll start to see some smaller events happening and regional events happening. But it was, you know, large scale events. I- I'd be really surprised if they're happening in the next year. Absolutely. And, um, really hard as an organizer to commit to it. And so I think going forward, though, hybrid events are going to be the thing. And we will no longer feel comfortable. Uh, offering a virtual pass that is merely the camera pointed at the at the stage, <laughs> with no community component. I hope that from now on, if you're running a hybrid event, it means you're actually running two events. You're running two events simultaneously, and you are putting the energy into that. That is the future, I think. As people are going to be, you know, I think for a long time, cautious about travel. Mm-hmm. There's going to be financial ramifications about what what people are able to do financially to get somewhere and travel. But they're still going to want those connections. So merely doing the minimum is going to get people turned off and you're going to see very low retention. The organizations and the individuals and the entrepreneurs that figure this out are going to have a very large following. I think those large numbers of people tuning in 
right now, I mean, we're talking, we're now in uh, mid-April. I think that by mid-June, they're going to stop tuning in in large numbers to the places that don't serve them. Because that's the thing. We have to serve the needs of our participants. Um, if they don't see the ROI, they will stop showing up live. Absolutely. Uh, you're going to really see top performers um, rise to the top. And it's it's going to be challenging if you are not doing a good job for you to retain an audience. Because yeah. um, I'm already experiencing some level of burnout in terms of, um, you know, webinars and, and events. And I'm noticing very distinctly the good ones and the not so good ones. And the good ones, I, I have willingness to continue to participate and the not so good ones. I'm, I'm just like, I'm sorry, it's, it's, it's not going to be a priority of mine. And it could be, um, you know, amazing people I know, and it could be that the content is really solid, but it's just, you know, I, I felt very seen earlier when you said, you know, we've we've got piles of books beside our beds. My my podcast uh, list that I need to listen to is just growing and growing and growing now that I don't have a daily commute to um to to draw it down, and it, it, it's overwhelming. And so when when it's overwhelming, people are only going to go to the best. And the best, as you said, it's it's where you have these kind of. All of the all the side things, aside from the actual rooms of people talking at a conference, um, are what you want to replicate. And I love those creative ideas that you mentioned around, you know, having hallways, having having mealtime storytelling sessions. Uh, it it's not that hard, like you said. It's not that expensive, but it's a completely different experience that you're giving to attendees. This is why I I rebranded myself as a virtual event design consultant and MC because. It is about designing the experience, right? It's not just the logistics. My background is doing event logistics. So I'm familiar with it. I empathize with the event logistics people. I understand the limitations of what they're working with. But in person, the people who are so busy working in the logistics often don't take the time or don't have the time to think about the culture. Mm -hmm. And that's what my role had been. And now that we're online and everyone's trying to just figure out the technology, I think, again, we have to go back to thinking about the culture, thinking about the community part piece. The people who get it and get good at it, I think they're going to see a real you know, rise to the top, like you said. Absolutely. And, and by the way, this is true for major events, like this, our focus has been. But if you're just an individual who decided, hey, I want to try my hand at this and do a little webinar, well, learn how to do some interactivity, learn how to facilitate. I'm actually working with a group of coaches who've had you know, this is a group that's had practicing uh, coaching and group coaching facilitation and workshops for you know 20 years apiece. And they realize uh, that what they do online is not the same thing and that you can't facilitate in the same way. Body language doesn't come across the same way. I've been doing this for five plus years online. So I just feel really comfortable and I understand how to translate what you would have done in person to an online space. So it's just, it's part of it's like now instinct, but I also think it's teachable if people already have you know, some lived experience doing facilitation. It's just the difference between moderating a panel in person versus an online moderator. I, you know, like if you've done it in person, I can train you to do it online, but there's still, there's still something there that you need to kind of pick up. And I don't know, it's, it's, it's going to be an interesting ride for a lot of people. Definitely. Yeah. I, I think if you've never facilitated in person, it is going to be especially challenging to figure out how to do it online, but you also might um, not have some bad habits to unlearn. So um, definitely don't view that as a as a barrier. But as you said, 
Um, everything that you've been talking about when it comes to a big conference, you can replicate at some level at any time with a smaller event. And so really thinking through whatever I'm doing, am I creating um, both basic levels of interaction, like Q&A, like seeing people, but then you've got to step up above that. Um, is what I'm hearing from you. So, you know, even if you're if you're doing a webinar, set it up so there's 30 minutes before and during that time you unmute everybody and they're on camera and they can just chat. Like that that's a really basic way. Um, now that might get unwieldy with a lot of people. So, you know, the idea of breakout rooms and other things. I actually, um, this conversation is reminding me because this was a small group, but um, just this week I had a, an invitation to a webinar from a, a great partner, and he's actually a former guest on the podcast, Jerome DeRoy of Narrative. We'll include a link to his episode um, in the show notes. And um, they're a storytelling organization. And so they had what would have been an in person workshop, and they did it online. They sent me in advance uh, a packet to prepare. It was virtual, but still I, I could print off if I wanted the workbook. Um, it had a, an entire guide on how to use the technology and, and some logistic things, as well as how I should prepare kind of mentally and, and in my space for it. And then during the session, there were breakout, one, you know, it was one-on-one -on -one little little groups so that you could, you could touch base with people and, and share your experience so far. All of those things made it. So I had to be there in person. Yes, I knew the recording would be available later. Yes, I had the deck, but I didn't want to just look at the deck or watch the recording. I wanted to be there live so I could have that experience. And so really think about like, how are you compelling people to want to be there through the experience that you're, that you're clearly creating? That sounds like a really great example. It, it was, and I, I, I'm still thinking about it. And um, one thing that came to mind that we haven't talked about so far, but um, but I'm kind of hearing it's, it's underlying all of this. If you are organizing an event using a technology, you have to understand the technology. <laughs> you have to take the time to learn the basics of just how it works, but also um you know, all the little, the extra things, things like how do I create a breakout room? Um, how can I get people to be unmuted? How can I create a hallway using Zoom? So whatever platform you're using, really making sure that um, that you learn it and or have somebody help co-facilitate who's an expert in that platform, because that's a barrier that I'm also seeing in some of the maybe less effective ones there's a person facilitating and they're clearly uncomfortable with the technology. And I always feel bad for them, but I also, as a guest, I'm just like, really? Like you couldn't, you know, get your stuff together. <laughs> well, and there's so many little things like, um, you know, a common thing that I've seen people do over the last few years is they'll be facilitate. They'll be like leading a, a workshop, you know, online, they'll be going through their slides and they'll say, Oh, let's just see what's happening in chat. And they'll stop and they'll mutter to themselves for two minutes as mm. they're trying to see if there's any actual questions. So instead, you could have someone who's tasked with watching the chat and alerting the facilitator or the speaker, in this case, if there is something happening that's pressing. And there's some different ways to do that, depending on whether the, that person moderating the chat, the chat is actually on camera or not. Mm -hmm. But essentially, most things can get, you know, held until Q&A, but occasionally, you know, something is said and it is confusing and someone asks a clarifying question, you want to address that. But having someone else take care of that so you don't have to stop what you're doing and sift through chat. And that's a subtle difference between a professional and, an, and, a, and someone who's not, you know, like preparing for that, setting that up, all those things. I mean, um, it's it, 
it's really just learning how to do all this in a virtual space, um, but getting the training, getting the support you need, and you're going to improve so quickly. I mean, that's the thing is that, you know, once you're aware of these, I just met with someone and she was asking about these you know, questions on how to facilitate. Before I even got into facilitation, I had her readjust her seat, her camera, and her light. <laughs> yeah. And she looked so much better. And I said, do you notice the difference? Go back to the recording and see the difference between when you're being blinded by your window and now where you're centered and you don't have all this like space above your head and you know where your camera is to look. And because she was like, I want to create a really engaging workshop. And I'm like, well, no matter what I teach you, if you don't know where to look in the camera and if you if you're fading into like <laughs> your room or you have a halo like, behind your head. <laughs> doesn't matter like I, it's so funny how the basics still matter the basics do not sit with your back to a window yeah it seems like it. that's the only thing people get out of this right elizabeth <laughs> there we go there's your one takeaway don't sit with your back to a window oh my goodness uh tv producers who are now having all of your guests for your 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 news programs um just dialing in remotely uh please 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 tell people uh please don't stand in front of a window the number of people who just look uh, it's terrible, just terrible. <laughs> and I know, you know, you don't have the professional hair and makeup people. Trust me, I, I understand. Um, and I'm very concerned about what my hair is going to look like after after another few months of this. But, um, you know, there, there's so many easy things you can do with lighting. Um, if you have the time and if you are fortunate enough to have the space, and I understand this is a privilege issue. You know, if you're in a very crowded home and you've got lots of people, you probably don't have a lot of options. But if you can create a space for when you're going to be on camera that has a nice looking thing behind you, um, that has appropriate lighting, where just every time you record, you go into that space, you could literally do this in a closet if you've got a, a big enough closet, but but really thinking through um, how you're going to do that. Uh, you know, it, it, if people can see like your messy kitchen or whatever behind you, or there, there's people walking around, like I've seen um, some really challenging things. And so it's, it's, it's not. I actually, easy. Elizabeth, I want to just jump in here. <laughs> um, my friend, Tamsin Webster, who is brilliant. She's a, a keynote speaker. She helps people create stories. She's, she's amazing how people find and create their own speeches. And she's a previously a producer of TEDx Cambridge. So she's, you know, really knows what she's doing. Lives in a very small 670 square foot apartment in Boston. And, I just discovered that her backdrop is actually a picture of her living room because of where she actually sits. What's behind her is her kitchen. Mm -hmm. And so I, all this time that I've met with her online, I never realized because it doesn't look like some fake background. It is a picture of her kitchen. That's I mean, awesome. of her living room. Yep. But, you know, and I always wondered why the window didn't, that she's a window behind her. <laughs> it's pretty far back. It isn't like right behind yeah. her. It's pretty, it's on the other side of the room, but it never seemed to, in, to interfere with how she looked on camera. <laughs> well, that's why it was, it's a, it's a beautiful high resolution image and it, and it must be a green screen because it doesn't look wonky and she doesn't wear big fancy headsets. She's got these very subtle little headsets that like tuck in her ears that you barely notice. You actually don't notice them. I mean, it's all, she's been doing this for a long time, but that's what I'm trying to say. She's in a really small space where it would be really hard for her to pull that off. So she created a virtual way to do it. And 
it didn't, I mean, it doesn't cost extra money to have a virtual background. Yeah. You know, it's just like a thing you do. So um, what else? Yeah. What else can we talk about? This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. I want to I wanna be a little self-promotional here and give one little plug because I think um, th- what you mentioned earlier in terms of having somebody help facilitate uh, questions, that's something that we've been um, internally at Criteria for Success developing some expertise in. We've done a, a lot of webinars lately. And our CEO, um, Charles, who, who is a lot of times one of the primary facilitators, um, he, he is not comfortable and he shouldn't have to be comfortable doing all of the technology part. And so we'll have him on as a panelist and he's, he's driving his deck so that it goes with the flow of what he's talking about. But then we have Ariana who manages the questions and all manage polls. And actually Laura on our team is a fast expert. I don't even know how she does this, but she will tie when he's talking about a topic and she'll think, oh, we have a resource. There's there's a link that I should share. And she shares it in the chat in the moment. And so if you can have multiple people helping to, to kind of co-facilitate, whether, you know, we're lucky enough to have, you know, three three different people other than the speaker that can that can help with this. But even if you have just one more person, honestly, um, it's it's such a huge, such a huge help. And I just, I love that you mentioned that earlier and I had to call in our experience because I'm super proud of what we've been doing. Um, <laughs> But I I did want to pivot because we've been talking a lot about event organizers and kind of two event organizers. And then we've got event attendees. And I am talking to so many people lately who, when they built their businesses, their entire lead generation kind of engine was in-person networking. You know, they attended events and conferences and met people. How would you recommend that those people engage with events so that they can start to see some of the same result that they got from in-person events? Is that even possible? Um, what what could they be doing there? Because they're experiencing a lot of kind of fear and pain and, and challenge. Well, I actually have a gift for everyone listening, uh, and I'll, I'll give the highlights of this, but the gift is nine ways to network in a pandemic. And it's a couple of pages that I wrote back in the very beginning of this in March, uh, early March, and it's available at robbysamuels.com forward slash LTS for Let's Talk Sales. That's robbysamuels.com forward slash LTS. And first, I just want to say that if the event is happening, then hopefully these virtual you know, interactions are possible. But even if the event gets canceled or goes online in just a content kind of way, but not a community kind of way, the reason you were going was to meet people. So go ahead and reach out reach out to people that you would have wanted to meet up with and invite them for a virtual coffee chat, you know, mm-hmm. or if there's a group of people that you were hoping to have a conversation with around a topic, or there was a particular topic you were excited about, go and share on social media within maybe that group social media that you're going to host a little ad hoc discussion space around that topic and see who wants to jump in. Um, you could organize virtual happy hours for, you know, a handful of people on the eve of or at the very end of the um, online program. So again, even if the event organizers don't do these pieces yourself, you can take some control. Just like at a at a live event, I always host at least one dinner. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually tend to not have any meals alone because I'm a I'm the extrovert's extrovert. So <laughs> I organize like gatherings for every meal, but at the very minimum, I will organize. Uh, one sort of t- eight to 10 person dinner. And I just similarly, if I were going to a virtual space now, I would be looking to do something like that um, online. The other thing is that the speakers have always been an incredible resource and undertapped. And most people mm-hmm. never think to reach out to speakers 
before going on a plane. And I think, why not? You know, this is who you're, you're deciding you want to go and talk to them and spend time with them. Let's build a relationship now. So likewise, you can reach out to them even before you get to the program, after the program and try to build a, a connection, you know, have a very, con- here's the thing with speakers and busy people in general is be really concise mm. with the question that you want to ask them so that they can, you know, really just give you a very specific response back and not just a general, like, I want to pick your brain. Yeah. I don't want anyone to pick my brain. My pick, you know, and I don't want to eat for coffee. Um, but if you have a question, uh, I had a person who had a question about facilitating and we hopped on for 20 minutes. I gave her a ton of value. She's trying trying to organize me doing some sessions with all of her friends that are coaches. Like, like, I'm happy to do that. It didn't have to lead to a thing. I'm glad that it is. Um, so the, the last thing I'll say, and I have a few more because I have nine, but I will say this last one, <laughs> which is to send a note of appreciation to the event organizers, just thanking them for their hard work, especially in light of how difficult things have been lately. No matter what decision they made, it was not an easy one to make. No matter you know how well they produced the virtual event or decided to cancel it or whatever it is they did, you know, it was not easy and they're working incredibly hard to serve you. A little appreciation right now can go a really long way in the future. So thanking anybody who is doing their best to show up right now and do your best to show up by creating opportunities for other people. Absolutely. Um, You know, what I'm noticing in these times is I have, I'm focusing more on just connecting with people and touching base and just checking in. And, and like you said, um, you know, I appreciate people who are able to kind of keep things moving and, and have been able to pivot. Um, I want to empathize and and support people who haven't been able to do that and just check in with them and see if there's anything I can do to help. But I think we all need to be kind of in this together. And so, um, that that's a, a basic thing that you can do, but I love, um, I love everything that you were saying about, you know, if, if the event is doing a good job at creating opportunities for networking, just make sure you participate in that and leverage that. If they're not, you can make up for it. And I love that you that you mentioned a lot of these are things that that you would probably would have done um, at an in-person event too. It, it's not often that you go to an in-person event and just participate in all of the the various you know networking options they have. If you're if you're a high powered networker um, and and just participate as a as a kind of like passive attendee, I, I don't know how many people that I've talked to who say you know I before I went I, I coordinated with these five people I had a coffee meeting scheduled before the before the session started every day I had a happy hour after it um, you know with with this group of people I coordinated this other type of event you can do all of that virtually and that's such a great reminder um, to people who maybe well, haven't I, been thinking about it. I actually have. A slightly different take, Elizabeth, because mm-hmm. while I know what you said is true, I also know that there's – so there's a study. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote a statistic now. The International Association of Exhibitions and Events found that 76% of people surveyed said that networking was a top driver for why they choose chose to go to an event. Mm-hmm. So that, that makes sense. Three-fourths of people are getting on a plane to go to an event to meet people. And yet you and I know that in reality, people are really – bad at executing <laughs> on that intention. And so in life, a lot of people say that's why they're going to the event and then they sit in the front row and take notes and don't partake in the coffee chat. They and I I just asked this on a virtual happy hour the other day and out of 
you know, I think it was like 25% of people raised their hand. So maybe they're the 25% who don't go to for networking, but they all said they go for networking. They all said, yeah, yeah, networking. So I think that it's hard because in real life, you have to figure out how to approach people. People are, I have my bagels, you know, my croissants and bagels book because bagels are those tight networking circles that are impossible to break into those shoulder to shoulder huddles. But if you, you know, shift your body language and make space when you're in those circles to kind of open it up, that little you, that's the croissant, right? And that's, <laughs> that's me in body language in person. So I think that online, a lot of the things that people say they are planning to do, they could actually do um, with a lot greater ease, a lot more intimacy, and and just have stronger connections. So if if live networking at events has been a challenge, welcome to the new dawn, because this actually could be a whole new world for you. And it might be that you're actually really great at this. So if you've always sort of watched the room and seen lots of possibilities, but not acted on them, now you can act on them with a lot greater ease. So it's, I think it's very powerful. And I think it is about being really intentional with why are you going, whether it's, whether it's flipping on computer or getting on a plane, I think it's still about how we spend our time. And at first we were all very excited to have any kind of conversation with people who weren't asking us to feed them. Um, <laughs> and then like it, that, that was a novelty for a little while. And then it was like, okay, now this has to be quality. It has to be worth my time. I've been hosting a virtual happy hour every week since mid-March, and um, I'm now committing to doing them at least through the end of May, and I'll probably keep doing them. Um, and they're all a part of a campaign that I've launched called No More Bad Zoom, <laughs> because that's the problem. So nomorebadzoom.com to find out about what I'm doing. They're all free. It's just a way for me to showcase what's possible to have a lot of fun. We do breakout rooms. We play music. We all have a good time. I give a little bit of content, context. And then I stick around to the end and answer kind of questions about how to use the tech or how to think about an event coming up. And of course, you know, if people want to do a strategy call, that's all good. But I'm not, you know, I'd love it to turn into something, but I'm also just want to give back. I believe that right now, when we look back 10 years from now, we will remember who showed up. And that's my criteria. I want to be showing up. Absolutely. I, I love that clarification you made because literally as I was talking, I was thinking, man, um, I'm, I'm probably being a little too complimentary to the general public. But um, yeah, really good networkers were doing all of this before and they just need to flip it online. And like you said, um, you know, it is it can be logistically challenging to, you know, you're going to this big conference, you're super busy, you're stressed out, you know you should schedule a coffee in the morning beforehand and you just don't. Um, you forget every time. I'm like, well, you know, when, when the world gets back to doing in-person events, try to get better. But in the meantime, it's actually easier in some ways to schedule this virtually. Um, so let's let's start to build that muscle um, in the current moment. One thing that um, that I think, as you said, you know, people are attending events and they want to establish a, a network and, and, and build relationships. Something that I'm hearing from a lot of people, and again, this has happened before, um, you know, in the before times, um, but it, but it's also happening now is people feel like, okay, I can have an initial conversation with somebody. I can um, get to know them a bit as a person, but how do I really pivot that into a business discussion or a selling discussion? Do you have any advice for people who are trying to kind of make that, just that like flip that switch from I'm networking with you to um, I'm selling to you? Yeah. So first thing is you don't do that in the first conversation you have with someone, unless that's the reason they reached out mm, to you. Yes. 
So if you're meeting with someone in, you know, a group space and you're paired off and you're having a nice chat, I think, you know, if you, if you realize that there's more to this, then you want to be intentional about following up. And that could be, and you might not even realize that they're a prospect, but they're just, I, I like to just follow people because I like the people. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the people I want to work with and, or they would know people I'd want to work with. So I think, um, you know, one thing is that you should probably have a plan to reach out three times to people, probably through different modalities mm-hmm. before giving up because you might have your follow-up email. Maybe they don't respond. You can always do a second nudge sort of follow-up to the initial message. <clears throat> you can connect with them on you know LinkedIn or Facebook or Twitter and then reach out to them there. Uh, it's just a matter of figuring out where they live, like where do they spend their time and how do you get back on their attention. Um, you might just try to connect with them by going to something they'll be at again. This is similar to online versus offline. It's always the same. And then sometimes what happens is I have uh, colleagues, you know, people I know for online communities who reach out and say, can I have, you know, a get to know you call. Let's do a get to know you call. And I will find myself in the past giving out an hour's worth of advice. Mm-hmm. And they hang up going, oh, my gosh, Robbie is so smart. I have all these ideas to work on now. Great. And I never asked them, and they never thought to pay me. (laughs) And they also now think they have what they need. So I think we have to learn as coaches and consultants to not give everything away. So there's a moment now that I recognize in the conversation where I realize I now have a dozen or more ideas. So I have you know, heard their problem. We've clarified the goals they have around it. We've talked about what they've tried, where they think the stumbling block is. I diagnose what they think what the, what the challenge might be. They now think I'm smart just because I've helped them frame the problem. And then I say, here's an idea. What do you think of this one thing? And now they're like, wow, that was brilliant. And I say, you know what? The reason I thought of it is that you, know, you sound like a lot like the people I've worked with, and I have a dozen more ideas like that. Would you like to talk about what it would be like for us to work together? Mm. And that's where the conversation now shifts because I've never gotten a no. There's no at that moment, they're like, Yeah, oh my gosh, like Robbie, that was really helpful. And then you don't go into the features of what you do. You share a client success story, mm. the outcome. And then you say, Are those the kind of outcomes you're looking for? Right. And now they're like, Yes, that's exactly what I'm looking for. And okay, well, you're probably wondering how I do this. Yes. By the way, if you're counting at home, that's three yeses. Yes, I want to talk about what it's like to work together. Yes, those are the outcomes that I want. And yes, um, I want to hear how you do that. And this is important in sales. So you got people through that little yes train. And now you would say, well, it's six months long and da, 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 whatever the features are. And then I always ask, is that, would that uh, modality work for you? Is, is that what you're looking for? Are you looking for a group? If I was offering a group, are you looking more for one-on-one? Are you, you know, asynchronous learning, group learning? Like, what are you looking for? What do you think would be best for what you need right now or what your team needs right now? So they would tell me or they would say yes, and I have more information. And then I, you know, inevitably, either they say, well, how much for all this? Or I say, I bet you're wondering what this all costs. (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, I'll always say, I bet you wonder what the investment is. Mm -hmm. And then I say the investment is, and I give them the price. So that's, that piece could be 20 minutes. It's like, it's just that you have to recognize the moment where you're like, oh my God, I have all this advice for you. And just, you know, put that away for now, (laughs) you know, 
and help them understand like people are three there's sort of different ways to look at this um okay so there's the problem they know they have they're and they're willing to admit there's the problem they know they have they're not willing to admit mm-hmm. and there's the problem that you know they have that they don't realize absolutely and that's usually the thing we're trying to sell so if we sell with that in mind they think oh that's not for me the other way to think about this is that pre- people are are symptom aware they are problem aware and they are solution aware and I got this last piece from Danny Inney um, also. He's he's really, <laughs> I've been working with him as one of his business strategy coaches for Miracine and the ongoing training has been tremendous. So you have to speak to people where they are. And so if they're symptom aware, you have to help, you know, name their pain and they're like, yes, that's the pain I have. Then you help them realize what that really is about. And that's the problem they're experiencing. And they're like, oh my gosh, major breakthrough. And now they're at a place where you can move them towards being solution aware. You can't rush that process, though, and I think too many of us just band-aid a bunch of things, and people go, oh, great, I'm good enough right now, thanks, <laughs> and then they walk away, and you never made a sell, and you didn't even make a person who would refer you because they they don't realize that's what you could offer is so much more. Absolutely. Uh, so much you have there, and I feel like you, you could be a sales trainer um, with, with that material, but um, I, I want to ping on one of the initial things you just said there because it's so easy. When people start to view you as an expert, it feels really good. And so if you're in conversation with somebody and they're asking you questions and you're giving them answers, you're like, wow, this is a great call. And it's it's some discipline that it takes in yourself to at some point pause it and pivot into, you know, I'd love to continue having this conversation with you, but I need to get paid for it. <laughs> and so you gave a really easy journey that you can take somebody on and that it, it was just so easy and it flowed and it doesn't seem, you know, stereotypically salesy in those, in those negative perceptions that people might have. But uh, one of the first and most important things that you do have to do is just prevent yourself from the, the joy that you get in helping people. You know, it's part of it is, you know, I don't want to say it's like an ego thing, but part of it, it just, it always feels good to be the expert, but it's also, it feels great to help people. But you can't help people if you if you eventually you know lose your job or or have no business because you're you're doing all this free consulting. So figuring out how can I um, how can I get them to pay me to help them uh, so I can stay in business and help more people is um, is an initial just first kind of like mindset to to shift to. Absolutely, I mean it's okay not to get paid if if you're okay having a hobby. Yeah, <laughs> that's fine. Um, and you know, think about it. People who have great gardens probably share their green thumb with their whole neighborhood and would never think to get paid and it's all fine. But there's a point where you're like, Oh wait, maybe I could package something and share it. <clears throat> so I do think that the the point for me is when I realize I'm about to say so much, I I now the the sentence is, Wow, you know what? I just thought of a dozen ideas for you because you sound a lot like the people I've worked with. Mm-hmm. And that cues them to the fact that I do this for a living. Like this is a job that I have. Mm-hmm. And then I say, would you like to hear what, what, what might be like for us to work together, which is permission-based. It's a, this is why it doesn't feel salesy. It's because it's permission-based and they are yesing their way down this path. And if at any point in. they're like not interested, I'm like, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> and I also, by the way, say, I'm also, I, I also tell people somewhere along this journey, because I won't take, I won't work with just anybody. I'll point out to them that I'm only actually even having this part of the conversation because I think we could work well together. 
and I'm picky about who I work with, mm-hmm. but I think both I could help you and I think I'd enjoy working with you. If, um, if I thought you needed help and it wasn't me to help you, I would refer you. Mm-hmm. And I'd be very happy to do that if you think I'm not a good fit for you. I have a great network and I'd be happy to find the right person. So I'm really clearly demonstrating that it's not, I'm not hustling here. I'm not begging here. It's like, I really am trying to provide value to you, which is not to give you a bunch of band-aids, but to actually get you the, the care and support you need ongoing. And if it's not from me, I will help you find the right person. Yeah, that's, um, that's really amazing. And that's something, again, um, in, in a not pushy, not, um, not unpleasant way, you're creating a little bit of a sense of, um, it it creates almost a sense of urgency when you don't push people, when you don't seem desperate, you actually attract people to you. And so if you seem like, you know, I definitely want to work with you. I want to work with everybody. Please, please, please give me, give me, give me, um, that's very unpleasant. And um, if instead you say, you know what, I want to see if we're fit for each other. I could say no, and you could say no. That's that's just a relief for the person. Um, it, you know, oh, you're not going to try to, you know, grab me around the throat and, and force me to do this. Um, all right, I know we're we're drawing toward um, toward a close. I did want to touch on two more things. Do you have a couple minutes more? Sure thing. All right. So um, just one thing that I, I wanted to bring up, because I know this is a focus for you, um, is uh, inclusive networking and just being inclusive in your in your approach. So can you tell us a little bit about why that's so important and um, big picture, high level advice that you might give to event organizers who've who've maybe had a bit of a wake up call that they need to be more inclusive in their events? Well, the high level reason for why this is important is that our most innovative ideas actually come from the edges of our network. Mm-hmm. And if we're only talking to people who have the very similar history, background, experience, uh, we're gonna we're gonna have no ideas after a while because mm-hmm. everyone's saying the same thing. So if you were trying to get a job, for instance, and you only asked your closest, closest, closest family members, you would very quickly have no leads. Mm-hmm. And it's through those sort of weak links, those weak connections, you know, Malcolm Gladwell really popularized this whole concept. Um, That's where you get new leads for new ideas, new introductions, etc. So I think of diversity on a number of levels, you know, demographic diversity, as well as geographical diversity, um, everything. The one thing I will say is not actually geared towards the event organizers, but those of us that attend events and network at these Mm. events all the effort that we put into showing up to these events, theoretically to meet people, we have stepped in it more often than we'd like to admit by having our first thing we say to someone be one of those observations that we think is a compliment, but is actually not. And it's really just pointing out difference. So uh, an innocuous one that I think happens still all too often, and if you're over 12, stop doing it, is, wow, you're tall. How tall are you? Mm. person knows they're tall and <laughs> it probably had to answer that question a lot. And so I met a kid who was 16. He actually had a business card that said, I am six, eight. No, I don't play basketball. And he would hand that card to somebody when they asked him the question. Oh my goodness. If, you know, if a question gets asked so much that there could be a pat response printed on a card, then we will not stand out. Uh, we will not curry favor and we will not be you know interesting or memorable if we simply do the same thing same thing is true about um skin color wow mocha you know cappuccino colored so blah you know 
No. I just cringed. Um, literally physically you're, cringed. <laughs> you're, um, your name is so exotic. I've never met anyone with a name like that. It's like, no, actually, this name is so popular in my home country. You know, it's like I have cousins named this. There were 16 kids in my class named this. It's like a very American-centric worldview that would lead to you saying that. Um, I mean, I can go on and on, right? Like, you don't – you. you Listen, when it comes to black women's hair, you don't touch it. You don't oh talk goodness. about it. Okay. <laughs> these are microaggressions. These are, these are things that uh, people deal with on a, on a level where it's, it's hard to point out and it's hard to course correct in the moment because then you're just being sensitive if you point it out. But cumulatively, it's what keeps people feeling like they don't belong. And I think that our job as we show up in the world is to help people feel like they're welcomed and like they belong. So we've all had moments of walking in and feeling like the only in the room. I am an out trans guy, so I know what it feels like to walk in and not sure if I fit into this space and whether these people would accept me. And so I think we just need to sort of have the frame of mind that, you know, look for people who are outliers. That's what I do, actually. When I'm in a physical place, I look for people who are either demographically out of place for the norm in the room or who look visibly more anxious about being there. <laughs> and I think that I have the skill to then welcome them in. So I go and seek them out. Now, if it's your first time at the event, I would not recommend walking up to the wallflower and engaging in a conversation as easy as that might be, because at the end, you're going to have two wallflowers awkwardly <laughs> sitting next to each other, unclear as how to like continue this into the next phase. So, but if you're a regular, if you've been going a few times, I used to think, you know, three three visits, three years in a row, three months in a row, then you're a regular. You're creating, you're co-creating the culture. Take it upon yourself to co-host by looking for people and welcoming them into the space by not asking the most obvious question, which is the thing you're noticing that's different. Now, there's a point in the conversation, Elizabeth, where you and I would get to know each other well enough to share our grandma's recipes. <laughs> <laughs> At that point, I, everything's fair game. You know, but it's just you don't start the relationship by asking those questions that everybody's, you know, you know, a name spelling, you know, like it's just little things that people have to deal with their their whole life. And it's like making them be put on the spot to do it yet again. You know, it's it's so annoying. <laughs> Accents are another one, you know, like it, it's it's really it's almost hazardous because. There, you know, obviously, if you hear like an Australian or New Zealand accent, that leads to us all saying how much we would love to travel there. But if you hear a Latina, then she doesn't know when you point it out, like whether there's something harmful coming her way. So, the, I mean, those, I really think it's on us to train each other to be pointing out this. I, I call it the downside to being a unicorn. Like, mm. you know, great. It sounds wonderful. But in reality, it's not all like you know, rainbows and sunny skies. It's spending the entire day hearing, oh my God, a unicorn. I've never met a unicorn. Hey, what's it like to, can I touch your? Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Um, I, I love that you, you kind of refocused that because it's so easy to think, you know, it's up to the people running an event to be inclusive. And then we will just sit here passively and participate in that. But it's really up to all of us. And whether you're the one creating the event or whether you're just there, um, so much of this is just be a good person, <laughs> um, you know, don't be uh, an oblivious like idiot. Uh, but, uh, it, it, and I don't want that to be an attack. If, you, if you've done this before, maybe you didn't know right. how people experienced it. So really think about it. If there's something about yourself that is relatively unique of any sort, imagine if everybody 
every single time they came up to you, pointed that out. Okay. Uh, you would be super frustrated. Elizabeth, <laughs> I have one of my sons is a redhead. And oh my goodness. I mean, <laughs> and he's not even like a shocking redhead. He's sort of like a strawberry blonde redhead. But in the sunlight, it's really obvious. And we, where does the common question is, oh my God, where does the red hair come from? <laughs> Genetics. Here's the funny part about that. <laughs> Both parents, both genetic donors need to have had red hair because that's how red hair works. <laughs> and if you took any kind of like schooling in the last 12 years, you know, so it just makes me laugh because they're looking for a story and the answer is usually more subtle than that. And um, yes, he's going to spend his life having to sort of respond to something like that. And that's not as challenging as the like the accent thing or the skin color thing or the hair thing but it's you can imagine how cumulatively this makes you feel like oh my gosh maybe i don't belong and you know one thing elizabeth that event organizers can do is they can train their their welcome like this welcome uh -huh. idea into what they do with their volunteers their board um their exhibitors they could give a training like this this is what i was doing i was doing pre-event webinars to give all these insights in to, to both participants and people leading the organization so that they come in with this sort of baseline. And I think it, it shifts and changes the way people experience the, the event itself. Absolutely. Um, I've got a sister-in-law and two nephews with red hair and oh my goodness, I, I just feel it, it just comes up all the time. It's like, really, really? Like there, there are lots of people with red hair. I promise. It's just not it's not that big of a deal. Um, but yeah, I, I love that you picked a, a relatively innocuous um, example because there, there's just so many and um, it's it's just, it's exhausting. So let's not exhaust people. All right, Robbie. Um, one question I always like to ask of our guests um, is, do you have any books that you would recommend to our listeners? It could be related to anything we've been talking about so far or completely um, outside that scope. Uh, just any recommendations you might have. Well, I'm going to recommend Dory Clark. I, I have a hard time having a conversation without recommending her. Uh, if you aren't familiar, Dory Clark is a, a keynote speaker, an executive a, a executive coach. Um, she is focused on how to be recognized as an expert. And she has three books. They're all really fabulous. Um, one of them is about how to um, reposition yourself and think about what you can do in the world. The other one is about standing out while you do that and build your expertise. And the third one is called Entrepreneurial You, which has so many great examples of how to build diverse revenue streams. So the first one's called Reinventing You. That's the title. The second one's called Stand Out and Find Your Breakthrough Idea and Build a Following Around It. I was fortunate enough to be featured in that book. And then the third one's called Entrepreneurial You. And you can find them all on doryclark.com, D-O-R-I-E-C-L-A-R-K.com or on Amazon. Um, I just think her work is is just really phenomenal and ranges from people who are working in corporate to entrepreneurs who all want to be like seen and uh, remembered in different ways. So it's it's quite quite a good collection. Absolutely. That sounds great. I hadn't actually I don't think I've read any of those. So you just added three more books to my endless unending list of, uh, of books I need to read, but I appreciate that. I'm sure our listeners will as well. All right, Robbie, if you want people to learn more about you and your work, where should they go? Well, RobbieSamuels.com is the, the place to get started. It has links to all my social sites and I would love for people to connect with me on LinkedIn, uh, and such. And, um, I also offered earlier the nine ways to network in a pandemic, 
which is at robbysamuels.com forward slash LTS. And if you mm-hmm. go to nomorebadzoom.com, where that leads is going to change over the next couple of years. But right now, it's it's going to an invitation to join me for these free virtual happy hours that I plan to continue for some time um, and to other sort of ongoing content to help people think about how to you know, be part of this campaign to just really end the really bad Zoom calls that we've all been <laughs> experiencing from my, my preschooler uh, on up to my dad. Like everyone I know has experienced bad Zoom. So I want to join the campaign and nomorebadzoom.com and uh, we'll have some fun while we learn together and I'm also able to answer questions there. I love it. I love it. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, we've all got our stories. All right. Well, thank you, Robbie, so much for speaking with me today. Thank you. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning into today's show. You can find the notes and resources for everything we've been talking about at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod 250. Be sure to tune in on Friday for another inspirational episode. And next week, when I'll be talking to Amy K. Hutchins, she's the founder of Amy K. International and a former guest of Let's Talk Sales. So she's coming back. Don't forget to check out my presentation at the International Institute for Learning's Leadership and Innovation Online Conference. It is live through June 7th, and you can use the code Frederick, F-R-E-D-E-R-I-C-K, for $10 off your registration. If you're enjoying the show, please recommend us to a friend and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you're listening. While you're there, please leave us a rating or a review. That'll help more people find the show. And it lets us know what's working and where we have room to improve. Remember to follow us on Twitter at CFS Playbook. Let's Talk Sales is a production of Criteria for Success and is produced by Ariana Miskell, Laura Marchoff, Mark Krogan, and me, Elizabeth Frederick. Happy selling!